0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. And it's about all of life through the prism of food. And none more so than this week when I'm with Charles Clover, author of Rewilding the Sea,
1: to dive
0: deep into the world
1: behind our fish. The fish that had been hit in this bait ball, dropping through the water, glinting as they went. I mean, it just, just had not been seen for generations in our waters and it was the moment that made me think we've got to rewild the sea. He's a seasoned
0: environmental journalist, a super campaigner. He even co-wrote King Charles's Highgrove portrait of an estate. But as co-founder of Blue Marine Foundation, he's bringing life back to our oceans and writing about it beautifully. Margaret Atwood calls his book a game changer. Isabella Tree says it's desperately needed. George Monbiot says... What if our seas became productive again with giant sturgeon, halibut and skate? It's closer than you think. I began by asking Charles if rewilding the seas means not eating
1: any fish. Oh, good question. It, it, it's not about not eating fish. It's, it, it's about making sure the fish are managed properly. As with the current and extremely good example of the resurgence of the bluefin tuna, for example, around Britain's shores, it's not been there for 70, 80, 90 years, but it's back. And it's back because of, principally, um, a fisheries management decision to make there be more bluefin tuna, actually manage it properly. Um, So uh, we need to manage the fish better, but we need to actually rewild the sea for a couple of other very good reasons. One is because... Fishing is having an enormous impact upon biodiversity, trawling, dredging, smashes up the seabed, destroys the forests of the sea, as some people call them. And um, and the other reason is that the forests of the sea actually absorb quite a lot of carbon. So we need to do all of this for carbon reasons too. We need to adapt how we manage the sea. And I, I like to call that rewilding it because people grasp that concept. You've been doing this a long time, Charles. You've been
0: the environment editor of The Daily Telegraph, since 1987, when The Telegraph wasn't really uh, committed to the environment. I mean, you you were responsible for environmental coverage for over 20 years, and you have grown the interest in environmental issues. But it's been a bit of a struggle, hasn't it? Let's start off with
1: how you've managed to get people interested. Well, oddly enough, I've done it by not working at The Daily Telegraph, where um, I... You know, I worked for a very different regime, uh, which was actually quite enlightened at the time. And if you remember, there was a huge green wave around 1987 because uh, the Green Party got an enormous vote in the Euro elections. And Mrs Thatcher took an interest in it as prime minister and thought that she was going to lose Tory votes. I don't know that she did in the end, but she thought it was a, a, a real enough threat. And she also... Uh, was briefed by some extremely good people and as a scientist she at that time may have recanted afterwards but she actually believed them about the seriousness of uh, the gigantic experiment that we were uh, uh, conducting with the planet itself. I seem to remember those were roughly the words she used in a lecture to the Royal Society. So It was really full on and every newspaper or media outlet hired an environment correspondent at that time. And actually the coverage was more competitive than it is in the rather uh, downgraded um, uh, 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 print media environment today, uh, thanks to, of course, the Internet.
0: The film that I first saw, The End of the Line, which is where I first kind of came across your work back in 2007, wasn't it? I was working with Transition Town Lewis at that time and they did a screening and we had a, a really interesting panel discussion about it. Um, I mean, I that really, really changed my mind about it. But it was only played to the choir. You know, the only people who were there that day were people who were already members of Transition Town Lewis. Uh, or other transition towns who'd come along for the event. And it took something like Fish Love, uh, Greta Skaki being naked photographed by Rankin, uh, which which was one of your ideas, wasn't it, um, to actually kind of propel it. Now, this is obviously you as a journalist realising what people need to, to really kind of engage with these subjects. Tell me a little bit about that period of your campaign and what you think it has achieved in the long run.
1: Well, I think it did achieve the breakthrough for this uh, consciousness that that overfishing is one of the world's biggest and probably most solvable problems. But I don't think anybody thought it was actually as challenging as climate change or whatever. But in terms of damaging the planet, the the, the oceans are actually deeper and bigger than the atmosphere, and the damage being done is out there is commensurate. And I think our even my awareness of that fact has gone on growing um but i did write a book which was, was extremely well reviewed about a niche subject or what people considered to be a niche subject you know how overfishing was changing the world and what we ate and um i got terribly good reviews and uh, then nothing happened so i thought well we've we've managed to hit the you know the fish buyer from waitrose but we haven't managed to hit the <laughs> The, the public. And so I better do something about this. And the the, the option then was that the, the, it was a brief window when you know, a, an independently made um, feature length documentary had been made by one Al Gore about the climate problem. And as we thought this was a, com- a comparable problem, it seemed obvious to make a comparable movie, and we did. It was called The End of the Line. But when we got to the end of making The End of the Line, which I have to say was Rupert Murray's wonderful direction, not me, but though I was in it, um, and had an awful lot to do with it. As effectively, I was a, a producer, though I was also a subject. Um, so I don't think we said so. Um, but, but at the end of it, we thought, well, we've got this thing. How do we get it out there? How do we make anybody want to show it? Um, or would it just sit on the shelf? and so we uh, went out and got some very clever people to look at how you would have maximum impact and they said well you need a uh, a world class celebrities prepared to take their f- their clothes off with a fish we said okay fine uh, we know greta <laughs> and um and and so it progressed and and then um it 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 did have multiple premieres and it in multiple countries and i think by the end of it, we were all quite exhausted. And then Hugh Fernie Whittingstall came zipping in with a television series that he'd um, probably um, uh, taken a bit of inspiration from us for. But
0: that's how life is. And it is. I mean, it's about actually creating a community and creating that sort of mushroom, that swell of interest. But the conversation now is much more joined up, isn't it? It, There seems to be more understanding about the the relationship between the bluefin tuna, who you mentioned earlier, and which is your first food moment, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit now, and the biodiversity, the, the, the marine ecosystem, and that's the bit that was missing, I think, from the fish love and the kind of the, the headline stuff. We do we understand it more? Are you still fighting to make us understand it? You know, why does it matter? for example, that the bluefin tuna exists. Give give us a little picture about the interrelationship between the bluefin tuna and the rest of the ecosystem there, and particularly what happened when the bluefin tuna returned.
1: I think what blew my mind about the return of uh, the bluefin to Britain's waters was the kind of whole ecosystem um, experience that people witnessed that wasn't there in the fisheries manuals or in anything, even in the history. And um, what people saw was first um, a, a swarm of birds uh, doing something in the sea. That's often how you find, you know, feeding frenzies of one kind or another. Uh, this was off the Hebrides. The bait ball was being attacked by a shoal of enormous bluefin tuna who move as you know you know incredibly rapidly accelerate faster than a Porsche and so on but it was the interaction with other birds and other fish that was so fascinating it had rewilded the sea in a way that we had not witnessed for generations and there were gannets and skewers all trying to steal little fish off each other that have been forced to the surface by the bluefin and gannets diving into the water to pick off Damaged ones, the this kind of chain mail dropping of the fish scales from the the fish that had been hit in this bait ball, dropping through the water, glinting as they went. I mean, it just this had not been seen for generations in our waters, and it was the moment that made me think you, we've got to rewild the sea. You call them the tigers of
0: the sea, yet despite the success of the campaign, they are appearing back in restaurants. What do we as consumers have
1: to do to stop that? I mean, is it as simple as not eating it? It's very difficult not to eat it because it's one of the most delicious fish you will ever eat. But if you can manage not to, or you can restrain yourself, then you should, because I mean, I do think there is a a problem about eating these fantastic creatures and at least until they return to a much higher, uh, number than they are. Because of course we return to fishing them at far too low a point because there is a clamor from the commercial fleets. The Japanese are out there long lining in the Atlantic. They want to get at it, um, because it's worth a huge amount of money, but we shouldn't get at it until there should, there isn't any, any rule that says, you know, You can't go and get a bluefin tuna until it's 50% of its original spawning stock biomass. At the moment, we're somewhere between 4 and 10% of the original spawning stock biomass for the Atlantic bluefin tuna. And that's much higher than the Pacific one or the southern, the southern bluefin tuna. So it's much healthier than them, but it's still not very good. And it's not a great message to be giving, frankly, um, for chefs to rush out and buy one and and serve it up to people, to my to my mind, because it is a tiger. It's a tiger of the sea.
0: But they wouldn't have returned to those seas if you hadn't been campaigning. I mean, tell us a little bit about that campaign.
1: Well, I think we won the campaign with the bluefin tuna. I was one of those people who managed to persuade the, the head of the European um, Fish Committee to go back in and take the opposite position on whether we should protect the bluefin tuna as an endangered species. And uh, the Japanese didn't really didn't want to do that uh they wanted to manage it properly they said okay well we'll just manage it properly and they have ever since and that's a great success but you know the the, the weird thing is that many little um policy worlds exist in a complete silo and 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 fishing is like that everything else all the in, environmental understanding about the sea and the, it, it's, it's the need to manage it holistically has come to the public, but it hasn't come to the people who take the decisions in those formerly smoke-filled rooms. And, uh, you know, that is why, actually, the the charity um, I founded, um, Blue Marine Foundation, uh, is very frustrated and is actually going to take the, the, the government to court this year because we're still not managing... Um, a majority of the commercial fish stocks that we agree on every year with the eu we're not managing those according to scientific advice which we are in the case of the bluefin tuna so why the heck can't we do it at home properly like the americans do or the australians do we really have failed our uh, our seas and it's time we sorted that out and perversely Brexit, which is not intended to do this, is giving us an opportunity to do that because we're moving from a kind of Napoleonic legal system to a common law legal system where you can actually test uh, the minister's decision, the minister's determination, as we are being um, asked to call it, in in, in court. And it's very exciting. Whether we'll win or not, I don't know. But somebody's got to do this because the system, the, the act that was was enacted after Brexit. With all the promises before Brexit, the act that was, we're given, isn't working.
0: Your second food moment takes us to the Ascension Island in the middle of the tropical Atlantic. The way that you describe swimming in those beautiful seas, uh, you know, it's something that the tourists who go to those places and the people who rely on the tourism of those places will totally recognise. How do we balance the tourist economy with protecting the turtles the unique species uh the birds how can we do that
1: well curiously uh, the foreign office has decided um to to do that by not letting anybody near the ascension <laughs> island because it for 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 security reasons it is primarily an air force base and a uh, a, a place from which we beam the BBC World Service to Africa. And the Foreign Office has taken a slightly pedestrian decision that it's not really going to encourage people, other than people who have an inn that, that are scientists or are on their way to the Falkland Islands via the, that that stepping stone, to really get off much and, and and go there. And that was partly because I think there was a, a recreational um fishing element before the recent runway um was repaired that they were quite happy to get rid of because i think it was uh, taking too much it wasn't it was taking huge trophies other you know megafauna of the sea and wasn't returning the value that that those were worth to the island um And while recreational fishing is is allowed within 12 miles, uh, it's not been commercialized as a matter of deliberate policy by the people who live on there, by the Ascension Island Council and by the Foreign Office. And and that's quite an unusual situation because uh, Ascension is lived on. They are all employees. They're employees. Everyone has to leave when they retire. It's an extraordinary thing. And, And there are people... It's quite tragic the, 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 the way it, the way it works sometimes, but those them's the rules, you know. For that particular um, security compromised island, um, that's the way they run it. Back
0: to Britain. Your third food moment is the native oysters. This is absolutely part of our food culture in Britain, though, are you saying? In the 1850s, 500 million oysters were sold in in London markets in a year. The dredging industry is... The thing in the certainly in the fishing industry that we need to be really, really aware of it. It has made a massive contribution to the marine ecosystem, hasn't it? In not in a good way. Tell us why you chose this as your third food moment and that lovely and wonderfully hopeful story uh, that you, you got involved with with Portsmouth University to bring the oysters back.
1: You know, in the 1970s, we still had a flourishing oyster fishery in the Solent, one of the last places that it really worked, Um, and I, you know, was surprised and and, and puzzled from all I'd I'd read to suddenly discover that the reason why this was, was like everything else, overfishing, because there'd been such a heavy layering of excuses given by, you know, ministries and managers for there not being any oysters, that I hadn't realised the simple fact which, you can't avoid if you look at the populations of, of, um, indigenous oysters around the world, which is that man is their enemy and tend to, tends to take too many of them. Um, whether it's the, the west coast of the indigenous oyster and in the west coast of, of, um, United States, whose Latin name I've currently forgotten, or the east coast, uh, uh two species, or the Australian oyster, um, what happened really was we took too many of them and didn't allow them uh, to uh, renew their populations. So and this was an absolute revelation to me when I when I read all this new literature and some feisty younger um, scientists who, who who decided to tell it like it is.
0: And one of the other really important things—it's another example of the wonders of the marine creatures. Oysters purify water. Uh, It stabilises the seabed. It's a hugely important part of the ecosystem, not something perhaps that people think about when they're ordering oysters. I mean, you know, what are the questions that people need to ask in the restaurants about
1: the oysters that would make a difference to the way that people buy? You should ask whether or not it's a native European oyster or whether it's a Pacific oyster, because for some reason in the 50s and onwards, we decided to use what we call Portuguese or Pacific oysters. Portuguese being slightly odd because actually the Portuguese went to Taiwan to get them. So they were actually all Pacific. It's just some as a subspecies from Taiwan, some as a subspecies from Japan. And these grow much faster, like a lot of introduced species. Um, They grow faster and they taste okay. I think the European ones taste nicer. So, and they also grow much more slowly. So that's why people were attracted to growing Pacific oysters. So getting that basic distinction right is quite important. I think you should also ask whether you know, whether the shell, because now so many of us are trying to put oysters back, and culture, as it's called, which is old shell, st- sanitized, sterilized old shell that's been allowed to bake in the sun or whatever it is they do to it, um, for a year or so, uh, it needs to be used because the old shells, uh, when there aren't any oysters, the old shells disappear into the mud, and you need to put new ones on for the spat to to land on. So I think the, the, some of the really good schemes that we're beginning to see are where restaurateurs are, are are rounding up all the spent shells, the, the, the shells of what, what the oyster people have eaten, and giving them back to one of these schemes so that they can go back in the right place, the sea, and not into the landfill. Those are, those are the things <laughs> I would do.
0: Excellent intel. Thank you very much for that. We will, I will certainly be doing that. Um, talking about the ocean floor, it's, it's, it's uh, perhaps people don't realise it is the world's largest carbon storehouse. It is really essential. I've just spent the the day actually writing about kelp and uh and and how important it is in in locking down um co2 your fourth food moment is about sussex kelp again local uh this is you say it brings together the three reasons why we have to rewild the sea for greater food security for biodiversity for climate change tell me why kelp is so important and what and just an example of some of the opportunities that these discoveries are giving us to give us hope for how these kind of products might actually save the planet.
1: Well, I think what's happening in Sussex is giving pause to even the people who thought that banning trawling in, a, in, in, the, in what was formerly the kelp belt, but hugely denuded kelp belt of, of Sussex would be a good thing. The the, the res- recovery we have seen there has been really very rapid, um, not just in kelp, which is taking a while to to come back, but is obviously um, uh, sprouting in places where it wasn't seen for, for, for some decades. But it's it's the general e- whole ecosystem that has just got healthier. The, a new thing seems to uh, come out every month from these wonderful people called Sussex Underwater. Um, this year, it, it's been um, mussel beds. Mussels, like oysters, are incredibly important and, and are habitats for other species as well as a single species in their own right. And lots of things eat little baby mussels and lots of rays and so on. And the 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 the, the mussels even off Brighton uh, were. And what were barren um, uh, slopes are coming back from you know a size of a of a of a tennis court to twenty tennis courts and that 's fantastic and they 're not being dredged up and you 're beginning to see what a very long time ago the channel might have been like and and you know the the, the dynamas of nature is just quite fantastic if you leave it alone and you harvest it really sustainably, using methods that don't damage the rest of the ecosystem, then it it does you, you know, multiple favours.
0: It's a wonderfully hopeful book. I felt like punching the sky as I was reading it. It has story after story after story of success. Um, I mean, it tells the appalling stories of the Anthropocene, of course it does, but it, it is a wonderful sort of celebration of nature, if we let it get on with what it wants to do. You're also uh, very involved, or you have been very involved with our now King, Charles. You wrote uh, Highgrove, a portrait of an estate How hopeful do you think we are in this current sort of era under King Charles? What do you feel about the future of the planet under his
1: kingship? Well, I will say, incidentally, and I don't know that he even knows this yet, that he owns the right to catch all the fish. So he might want to, you know, have an influence upon whether or not the government is exercising that and apportioning that. Well, um, that's just something that's come out of our recent legal action. But I think that the, the world the, the the king presides over or the country the king presides over is, is very traumatized by the impact of climate change, which we and I um, were told, uh, which I told people and which we have been told for 30 years is, is, is something we need to do something about and which we have done something about far too slowly. And and the the, the gloom about the atmosphere, which I, I do feel uh, along with a lot of young younger people is to an extent not the same in the sea because if you do something in Britain, it doesn't necessarily make the atmosphere any better in China, but you can act fairly locally or regionally to make your sea better and it will make it more resilient to climate change. It will make it more resilient to acidification, which is possibly the worst uh, thing that we're doing to the sea and it, it there are many hopeful things that are going on or at least if we're not doing them we ought to be doing them and if we were doing them we would feel more hopeful there's something you can do about it which to, the, to a large extent with the climate there is so much less particularly for the individual Thanks for listening. Do head to
0: Extra bites on my substack to hear Charles tell us another of his massive wins for the sea. This time, dogger. And I'll see you next week.